Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This song was written to rip a chicken apart, too. I couldn't tell. Beba Deba, Alice Cooper. It's Second Coming by Alice Cooper of his 1971 album Love It to Death. It's also number 454 out of 500 on the Spotify original, The 500. What's up, everybody? It's me, your host, Josh Adam Myers, the King of Fleece. Thank you to everybody in the Fleece Army that is tuning in each week as we count down Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 albums list from 500 down to one. By the way, I'm also not condoning ripping apart chickens. Anyone who knows me knows that I love chicken. Balsamic, Marsala, and of course... Kentucky Fried. Guys, this Friday, we're doing a live taping of the 500 at JFL 42 in Toronto. Me and my good buddy, Dan Soder, are going to be breaking down the police synchronicity. Man, is this a weird album, but man, is it going to be fun to make fun of every breath you take with Dan Soder, guys. September 27th at 3.30 p.m., JFL Toronto. I want to see all my generals, all my captains, all my sergeants, all my privates, corporal, whoever. If you're in the Fleece Army and you live in Canada and you can make the trip and get away from work at 3.30 p.m., come. I personally, personally will sign your fleece. Also, guys, do your Instagram stories. Take a screenshot of how you're listening to the 500 and tag me at Josh Adam Myers. And then why don't you go ahead and give a hashtag the 500 podcast. And then why not maybe in bigger font put hashtag fleece army. We're trying to get the word out. You guys are doing a great job. I know I do it every week, but trying to buy like of some new bonies. You know what I'm saying? Before we dive into the record, I want to give a huge shout out to Bill Burr. Last night, Bill and I went to go see Guns N' Roses at the Hollywood Palladium. Honest to God, I can pinpoint the exact moment in my life. I was seven years old, in my bedroom, listening to DC 101, and they played Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction in its entirety, setting it up like this band is is hot right now in LA they're gonna be huge here it is I don't think a band has ever affected me so much like listening to it at that moment changed the whole direction of my life like this podcast doesn't exist the goddamn comedy jam doesn't exist I don't even know if I get into stand-up comedy I know that sounds like a weird connection but Guns N' Roses is just an Axel and Slash and Duff and Izzy and Steve and and everybody just just such a great band and to be able to see him with Bill in such a small venue also fucking Uncle Joey was there Joey Diaz was there we were partying an incredible show they played for almost three hours 
They were having so much fun during that show at one point. And I mean, this is like two hours and 15 minutes into the show. And by the way, they started two hours late. So this is like 1 a.m. They're playing Wish You Were Here by Pink Floyd. They didn't write that, but they didn't care. They're that good. I'm telling you, if you are a fan of Guns N' Roses, go see them on tour. You know why they're so good right now? And I'm going to say this. They're so good because they broke up before they got shitty. They broke up right after Use Your Illusion, and then everybody, all that time, that was like, what, almost 20 years, and if they wouldn't have broken up, they would have probably put out some crappy music. So the fact that they broke up, and then 20 years later, came back together, just one of the hottest, one of the best shows you're ever going to see. Thank you, Bill Burr. Thank you, Duff's manager, Brian, and thank you, Duff, for the tickets. With that being said, let's find out a little bit about Alice Coop. Released on March 9th, 1971, Love It to Death is the third album by American hard rock band Alice Cooper. Now let's clear up some confusion. Although, lead singer Vincent Furnier adopted the name after their breakup and the start of his solo career in 1975, the band named Alice Cooper consisted of him, lead guitarist Glenn Buxton, rhythm guitarist Michael Bruce, bassist, Dennis Dunaway, and drummer Neil Smith. The band formed in the mid-60s at Phoenix, Arizona's Cortez High School from members of the cross-country track team, with the exception of drummer Neil Smith, who went to a rival high school. After high school and several name changes, the band moved to Los Angeles in 1967. They settled on the name Alice Cooper because it sounded innocent and wholesome although they started the rumor that it came to them during a Ouija board session. With a freaky look of tattered women's clothes and smeared makeup and playing loud, heavy, psychedelic rock with a shocking theatrical stage show, audiences in Los Angeles either loved them or hated them. And it was at one of their hated shows at the Cheetah Club in Venice that the band met their future manager, Shep Gordon. And I'm going to stop right there. Because I don't need to tell you anymore, when you have the dude that fucking lived it as your guest. My guest today is the supermensch himself in one of the world's most interesting men, Shep Gordon. He's the legendary manager of Sylvester Stallone, Michael Douglas, Wolfgang Puck, and our artist this week, Alice Cooper. You can see his documentary, Supermensch, The Legend of Shep Gordon, that was directed by Mike Myers. Not the serial killer, the guy from Wayne's World. This is it. We've never had somebody that fucking lived the record. And Fleece Army, you get that today. And I couldn't thank him enough for taking time out of his busy schedule to come and join me on the podcast. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify, guys. Or anywhere you get your pods. But listen on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to do but say, here we go with number 454 out of 500 with Love It to Death by Alice Cooper.
Shab Gordon, Shab Gordon, Shab Gordon, Shab Gordon. You're not going to join in? You're just going to stare at yeah, me? I'm going to stare. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well normally, normally I would ask our guests what was the first uh, time they heard this artist and the album. But instead, uh, I want to ask you what you saw in this band that had cleared the room at Cheetahs in Venice and thought to yourself, I need to work with these guys. Um, not really the way it happened. It was, um, I had nothing else to do. And, um, <laughs> were you just out for a stroll or were you, you, so no, you, though you were... I was, um, I, I was, um, I was in a different profession. I was a pharmaceutical salesman at a time when, um, it wasn't legal to be a pharmaceutical oh, salesman. Okay. And, um, I needed to say that I did a job. So um, Lester Chambers from the Chambers Brothers said, are you Jewish? And I said, yeah. He said, you should be a manager. I said, great. He said, can you afford to pay somebody $10 a week to manage them? And I said, absolutely. And Alice was living in their basement. So he took me to see Alice and introduced me as a Jew that would manage them. <laughs> so it wasn't really a taste. Um, it was a uh, Alice needed money, and um, I needed a cover. But did you guys hit it off immediately? Yeah, well, immediately. Was... Yeah, we had we uh, we became friends immediately. But I certainly didn't take it seriously. I mean, for me, um, it wasn't even a thought of being successful. Really? Yeah. So you didn't see that that thing that you were like, okay, I can work with this. It was just, all right, this is the job that I'm going to do right now, and if I do a good job, fantastic. And if not, it just pays my bills. And yeah, it wasn't even do a good job. I'll. Alice was probably the least liked band in Los Angeles. Um, they, they, you know, it was um, it was guys named Alice who were wearing dresses. It, it was this was not anything that was going to have any chance to make it whatsoever. Um, so it 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 was a di- it was very different. You know, there, there was a street scene. Frank Zappa had um, sort of developed this street weird. Thing, um, Wildman Fisher, who was, uh, I don't know if you know the roster at Straight Records. No, I don't, please. It was Wildman Fisher who um, played a cardboard guitar and lived in an insane asylum. The cover of the record was him stabbing his mother to death. Oh, that people probably loved that. Loved that. <laughs> there was the GTOs, who were the girls together, Outrageous, who were the first groupies. They weren't singers, they weren't performers, they weren't musicians. Um, and Alice, that was the, so it wasn't, it wasn't conceived for success. Um, it was later on when, um, people were getting arrested in my profession. And I, as, as the band manager or no, the as pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical yeah. uh, that, um, that I needed to do something to make a living and Alice needed to do something to make a living. And we sat down and said let's do this. So where were they at when 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 you met them? I mean just completely unknowns? No, or? no, no. They they were a very big band from Phoenix. I wouldn't say very big. They had a, a top 10 record from Phoenix and in those days every band would come to the Sunset Strip. A place called Gazari's, the Whiskey a Go-Go, and you'd audition and try and become a star. Um so it was bands from every city in America would converge. And you needed something to be a little bit different. And they were Alice Cooper, and they were really different. But it was was at a time when 
the Grateful Dead Jefferson Airplane. It's a beautiful day. San Francisco really um, laid back, playing dungarees, don't do anything. And all of a sudden, here came these freaks. You know, so the first album, um, Rolling Stone said, um, this is something that Walt Disney had the good sense to leave in the can. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was just a different thing. So um, when we start, when when we decided to really get serious that this was, you know, we were not, we, we were not teenagers anymore. Um, the strength that Alice really had was that people didn't like him. So when we looked for a strength, what's our strength? How do we actually make a living doing this? Our connection to the audience was hatred. It wasn't admiration. <laughs> and, and that has always been an effective tool in the making of musical phenomenons, is hatred of parents. Uh, and that's a common thread. Elvis Presley, you couldn't see the hips on TV. Um, so we realized, um, wait a second, we really have, we, we got there naturally. If we could get a parent to say, I hate Alice Cooper, I hope you never go to that concert, we know the kid was going to go, that's my favorite band. Who exactly are they? They're going to ask their friend. But, um, and where Love It to Death came from was our realization that, wait a second, this, is, this could actually work. Now we better have music. Because if, if we can really make this work, it's based on good music, which we didn't have. And that's what led us to Jack Richardson and Bob Ezrin. Because this is like right at the beginning of their careers, right? In, in a sense, because, I mean, I, I know the name Bob Ezrin as soon as I was looking over, like, who produced the record. And I think Bob Ezrin has been a part of some of the greatest records, like, ever in the last, like, 30, 40 years. Um, so how hard was it to match those two guys with Alice? Bob Ezrin had just started work the day that we showed up at Jack Richards' office, Bob Ezrin had been hired. It was his first day of work. He was a uh, runner. He was hired as, I think, a runner at the office. And my partner and I, Joe Greenberg, we sat in Jack Richards' office, high on psychedelics, telling the assistant we're not leaving until he meets us. <laughs> and we have this band, Alice Cooper, and we wanted to produce him. I love that you that you you were like, all right, we got to get ready for this huge meeting. Grab the mushrooms, a little <laughs> bit of blotter. We got. I got to be on the top of my game. It was I got to be at the top of my game. Those were the days. <laughs> um, and um, Bob tells the story of Jack coming in saying, "Okay, your first job is get rid of these two guys in the office." And we talked him into coming to Max's to see Alice in New York. We didn't know it was his first day of work. We thought he actually was somebody. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and Jack said, okay, you can go, but you have to say no. And he came to Max's and he got it. And he said yes. Uh, how great is that? All right, well, let's, let's, let's get into the record. So our album is number 454 out of 500, and it's the third studio album, Love It to Death, by Alice Cooper, released on March 9th. 1971 and as like you said produced by jack richardson and bob ezrin for for me uh 
the Alice Cooper that I knew was, you know, like, you know, poison running through my veins. You know, and that's what I was expecting when I was putting this on. I had no idea that this was going to be a, in a sense, a psychedelic adventure, you know, through different styles of music. Like when it gets to a couple songs that are in the middle, I was like, I can't believe this is Alice Cooper. Like I had no idea it was going to go in that direction. I was expecting shock rock, Mm -hmm. you know, the stuff that I knew that was popular, like teenage Frankenstein. Um, No, basically garage rock. I mean, it's garage rock. It's, you know, it was the, the the real Detroit kind of garage rock, with with good production. No, a, a incredible production. I, I was completely blown away when I first started listening to this record. And I mean, some of the songs are a little bit longer than others, but I felt every song that was in the record fit the whole sum of the album. Like it almost had to be the order of those songs to make that record work. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce. And I'm Nolan. And this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band or just a fan of great music, we think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on The Corner of Gray Street. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest, to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurewitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. All right, well, let's dive into the record. So it opens with Caught in a Dream. Uh, Peter, can you play the intro for me? All right, so this is the second single released from the record. Uh, for someone that associates Alice Cooper with sinister themes and spooky music, uh, this sort of caught me off guard uh, because we did All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople, and I was like, this is, it's 100% to me sounded like something off of that record and something that I wouldn't expect. Now, this one was written by guitarist Michael Bruce, and it sounded like they were already skeptical about the results of the fame they expected and the success they deserved. Uh, what would you say is the biggest misconception you've had about what success would be like? Um, 
I don't know if I had any expectation, but it's it's sort of like a railroad train. Um, you don't really know you have it till it's there, and sort of over. So, um, I, it's a strange word, success. There's a lot of parts to it. I think um, you know you're successful when you're when um, you're supposed to be happy and you're really miserable. That's uh, that's usually the first sign of success. Sure, sure. Um, uh, but I think you know, for us, again, those times were so different. I think uh, I don't remember. We were probably doing two albums a year, maybe three albums a year. I don't even know when the second one came. But we, you were constantly in the studio. And 1971, I believe, was "Love It to Death." Nin- yeah. 1972, Alice did the biggest tour in the world. Um, there's a book called um, Riding the Limousine that Billboard put out, and the three biggest tours of 72 were the Stones, the Who, and Alice. And um, Alice, I mean, Zeppelin, Who, and Alice, and Alice was the biggest. So we were just on a whirlwind. We had private planes and marching bands meetings. You didn't have time to to know if you were successful or not successful. But again, I think the biggest sign of the success was appear. It looked like you should be thrilled, and we were all miserable in some way, shape, or form. And I don't mean that in a horrible way, but none of us had found sort of our path. So, so you're chasing stuff. You're jealous of other people's success. You're greedy. Um, you're paranoid. Just all this. It's very hard to deal with success. Stuff comes so fast at you. So this was this this was almost instantaneous. Like this yeah, came out yeah. and it just changed everything changed for everybody everything. involved. Were they af- were they afraid of the success? I mean, I ideally no. when you're getting into a band, I mean, the goal is to be like as a comic. It's like my goal is to tour and to be able to make a special and to see myself on that path. I mean, for someone now, I'm able to be grateful for for that. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, I think the criteria for success would first criteria was that we could buy lunch. <laughs> yeah, dude. That was the first, <laughs> you know, oh my God, we can actually eat. Yeah. Um, and then uh, people will start buying you meals and you're still the same person. You're still wiping your ass and it smells. And, and now all of a sudden, you, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't get a meal four months ago and now people are throwing caviar at you, Yeah. which you've never had before. Um, I think it's it's success is one of the toughest things to deal with. So in some ways, better to be in a blur and not even realize you're successful until you can take a break and get some help. But I think you know if you look at all those rock bands, all damaged, either dead or damaged. Very few survivors who didn't. You know, Alice went to rehab. Um, every almost everybody who got me in the business, Jimi Hendrix dead, Janis Joplin dead. Jim Morrison dead. Everybody from the pool the day that I started in my business who introduced me to Alice, for the most part, gone. Hmm. So that's success. And, you know, it depends. Well, I think some people handle it yeah. handle it a lot differently. Some people never feel deserving of it. It's very tough. When I when I had my my TV show on Comedy Central, that was probably the most depressed I've ever been. Yeah. Success uh, is tough. Yeah, it's it's it definitely, especially too, because then, like you said earlier, it's like when you I when you are getting all the material things that you thought were going to make you happy. 
and you're still stuck with that empty feeling on the inside, that's when you hear about these rock stars killing themselves because they just like, well, I have everything. What was it like in the studio when you guys were making the song? Um, It was really interesting because um, they gave real structure to stuff that never had a structure. This is this is Bob and Jack. This is Bob and Jack. Um, really gave it a structure. Um, Eighteen was a, was a completely different song. They restructured it completely. It was um, I don't remember the name of it, but it was a completely different song. It went into a big jam. Um, same thing with with um, Caught in a Dream. Um, what we started to also see was Alice's. Um, amazing ability to um, mirror what was going on in society. It was almost like if you listen to the lyrics of his songs, they really mirror what's going on in the world um, and in his life. And and that started to come out. That had never been there. I had never seen that before in their lyrics. Um, so not only did structure come in, but relevance came in. Um, things like um, I'm 18, yeah, let's let's dive into that because you brought that one up. Here, let's play a little bit of it. Play a little bit of 18 for me, Peter. Funny fact, uh, allegedly, this is the song Johnny Rotten sang to audition for the Sex Pistols. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, one of Alice's songs was, uh, was it 18? Yeah, it was 18. It was 18. It yeah. was 18. Yeah. So, uh, after Warner Brothers acquired Zappa's straight record label, they released this as a single before they would allow the band to record an album. No, it's, it, it was, this is one of the most complicated, and, and it's hard for, I think, a layman to understand. And it's something we really don't talk about much because it's, there's no reason to. Um, but it was a very, it was a very dark era, um, What's going on in 71? Like, so, 71, so, is that, is that, uh, so here, is that Vietnam and shit like that? All that stuff had just ended. Reagan was there. But it wasn't so much that. It was, um, when I say a dark era, it was a dark era in the music business because artists, um, it wasn't a sophisticated business. It wasn't like it is today. So you had a lot of outlaws making up a lot of their own rules, doing it in their own ways. Alice ended up on straight records. Straight Records um, signed acts that had no chance of success. That was the theory of Straight Records. Um, I I think I told you who all the artists were. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We could never quite figure it out. Um, We went in to do our first album. We had never done an album. Went to Whitney Studios in Burbank for Straight Records. And we thought Frank Zappa was the producer. And we showed up at nine o'clock in the morning to Whitney. We met Frank Zappa's brother, who was at the board. Frank showed up about 9.30 and uh, said hello to everybody and said, I'll be back at five o'clock to pick up the album. And we went, okay. And so the guys were sort of tuning up. And at five o'clock he came, he took the tapes, and that was it. That was the first album. Hmm. Eight hours of tuning up. If you listen to the first album, you will understand. But we thought that's sort of how you did a record. Then I met some guys from uh, 
I, I did a, a festival in Toronto with John Lennon, and I met Neil Young's producer, David Briggs, who was the first real producer I had met. And when I told him, he said, nobody does an album in eight hours. You actually go in and spend a week, two weeks, three weeks. So, wow. So um, we got him to do the second album, but they would only give him enough money for three days in the studio. That was easy action, I think it was called. So now we started to realize that we're never going to have a, a hit record unless we bring in somebody who can really do a record and can fight straight records. So I find Jack Richardson. Jack commits to do it with Bob Ezrin. Jack was the hottest producer in the country because of the Guess Who. So when I went to Warner Brothers, who were distributing, and I told them I had Jack Richardson, they got really excited. In those days, producers were the whole game. That's, that was the game for the record companies. They went to Straight Records, and Straight Records said, no, you can't do it. Why can't you do it? Because he'll give them a hit record. Well, what's wrong with a hit record? Well, it's, <laughs> no one can hear it's, this. It's the producers. It's an economic decision. They had gotten a lot of money to give albums to Warners, but they only spent one day's recording. The only way they would have to pay Alice Cooper any more money is if Alice Cooper sold records. They didn't want us to sell records. So, but Warners wanted to work with Jack Richardson. So a fellow named Clyde Bikimo there took money from the Doobie Brothers recording budget and gave us the money to do our first four tracks unbeknownst to straight records. So that's why it's on different labels. If you read about Love It to Death, it's on straight label for a while, then it's on Warner's, then it's on straight. Then they made up the story that Warner's bought the label. And that's why it was on different labels. Well, this was this was was this is their first like hit song, right? Eighteen, which destroyed the label. Ah, because now they had to pay us. <laughs> That's the only way they would ever have to give up the money. Yeah, is they had to pay us for the record. They're like, it's rising. Fuck. Yeah, it's a producer. Fuck. I wanted. It's supposed to be below three hundred. What the fuck? So now we get a hit record. Yeah, with eighteen. How happy was How happy was Alice though? I mean, that has Alice to be, is thrilled. It's thrilled through the roof. Waters right? is Especially... thrilled. Straight record sues. You're Waters. high on on, straight, on mushrooms. Straight record sues me. Yeah, sues Alice. Sues Warner's for getting a hit record. <laughs> sues us. We how do to, you How do you fight that? We lawsuit? went to court for four years. Four years. We were in court for. Four. Did the judge just look at this and go, "This is fucking ridiculous"? No, no, because Warner sort of sided with them in the end, and it became it got ugly. It, we lost half our publishing, but but we got the hit record. We got to finish our album. Um, we got Warners to put up the money to finish the album, and we got them to buy out Straight Records so we didn't have to deal with Straight Records anymore, and then the career began. All right, uh, that then goes into Long Way to Go. Uh, this song is where the title of the album comes from. Uh, Peter, play a little bit of Long Way to Go for me. The song is about reaching a personal destination and how one might even have to sacrifice relationships to make it. What have you had to sacrifice to find success? Um, I, a lot of my personal life. I mean, really now, now first starting to get more of personal life. 
Um, but I, 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 um, I was a workaholic for most of my life. And it's very, for, you know, I chose a profession that, um, probably if I went back again, I may not have chosen the same profession. Um, really? Only because, you know, it went, as a manager, if you become successful, you, you're managing a lot of artists. And um, each of those artists only have one life. So if you have 15 artists and you win with 14 and lose with one, you've lost one life. That's a heavy burden. So it's, it's hard to find. For me, it was always hard to find time for myself knowing that that was taking away from maybe the chance of success because I've had artists I work with that I didn't, that I'm not proud of, of you know, I didn't get them through to the end line. Um, and they only have one life. I go on with mine. Um, but was it with those artists that didn't, was it was it because of, of their music or was it, are you saying it's because you of never just know. you not having yeah. enough time to you like, never, focus You never on know, that. but. You know, when you sign on, you take on the response. At least I took on the responsibility of bringing their dream to life. Yeah, um, that's sort of my job was to bring a dream to life. So, an artist like uh, Magic Fashik from Nigeria, who's one of the most beautiful people I ever met, I couldn't get across the finish line. You know, but it's human stuff. It's hard to just you know then go go to a movie and. Uh, you know, have an ice cream sundae. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so this next song uh, kind of caught me off guard. Black Juju. Uh, this song is long. Uh, and are you ever like Alice? The song is great. Uh, can we cut this down to about 350 instead of doing a nine minute skull and bones jam? I would say this was probably a compromise between Bob and the band. Black Juju was a very effective on-stage song. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, I could just imagine the the atmosphere that he's creating, especially with those slow uh, beating drums that go on for about like two minutes and then the sinister organ slides in. And, and Dennis Dunaway, who was a very, very strong musical contributor to Alice Cooper. Um, a marked difference without Dennis in the band. Um, he really was the father of those black juju type of moments. Um, and I think this was really a, uh, a Bob Ezrin, I wouldn't compromise not the right word, but collaborative effort to give Dennis um, his voice in the record. I, I don't remember, but it's probably written by Dennis, and I don't know if it was the whole band. Or yeah, anything. it was written by uh, Dennis Dunaway. Yeah. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles 
now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Uh, so play your play a little bit uh, of Black Juju for me. This was the this was the moment in the album to listen to this where I was like, "What the fuck!" Like this was not what I expected because it it's got this progressive gothic almost Doors sound Arthur to Brown. it. Yeah. yeah, sort of Arthur Brownish. Yeah, it. but I mean, and then there's these these fucking like dynamic sections, and there's whispers, and then there's screams, and there's chants. Uh, like you said, it was written by bassist Dennis Dunaway, and it seems to talk about a syringe-related overdose and death, and the body getting eternal rest, and then maybe waking up and coming back. I guess that's the juju part. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very, very Dennis influenced. Yeah, um, yeah, that's it. all the um, I would the mood music that that appears on the albums. That's always Dennis, and and a very important part, Alice Cooper. Um, Alice and I talk a lot about that piece has never come back since the group is disbanded. That everything else sort of can be replaced, but that Dennis, the connection that they had, and just his sound, his feel, Dennis his very, yeah, yeah, very unique, and a very unique bass player, great bass player. When did they they split? Split in seventy four, seventy five. Was it just? It was it a? Was there an incident? No, no real incident. Um, I think a real difference in opinion on the direction of the group. Um, Where, which way did Alice want to go and which way did Alice Dennis want to go? and I really wanted to go theatrically. Um, we felt that the, that the theatrics really define what Alice Cooper was. Um, and the uh, concept of telling a story on stage was really important to us, not just a series of songs. And Alice and I chose to just go on our own. But he, he he didn't leave. He was asked to leave. Oh wow! Uh, but in in a very I mean we're all great friends. They all sure. play together all the time. They just did a documentary together. Dennis played with Alice I think three weeks ago. Um, all stay friendly, but at, at a difficult choice. All right, that goes into "Is It My Body," which is probably one of my favorite songs on the record. I Peter, agree. Yeah. play a little bit of that for me. So this was the B-side of I'm 18, and also, in my opinion, it's probably the sexiest song on the record. And I also can hear from the way that he's singing, like how Glenn Danzig might have been influenced uh-huh. uh, by Alice Cooper. Lyrically, it's questioning the motives of his attractiveness to his lover and his lover's attraction to him. I think that I think it's a bigger, although I never really discussed with Alice, to me it's a, it's a bigger issue, it's 
here is a guy named Alice Cooper. And there was an overtone. You have to remember that in, um, in those days, nobody was coming out of the closet. Gay was a different kind of a thing. So for anybody to call themselves a female name, being a male, whether they were homosexual or not, and then to deal with those issues, um, to talk about your body, these were things nobody came out of the closet. It was. How much backlash did he get because of calling himself Alice Cooper? Um, we got we got more for the animals than we did for the sexuality. Um, I, I th- because it was right at the edge of it coming out. I think we got more acclaim than beat up for it. I mean, there were a lot of rednecks who you know went crazy, but that wasn't our. Who the hell is goddamn Alice Cooper? But we definitely had the ASPCA every single night. Oh, I can night, imagine. Every night. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking, but, but what I got from the song was maybe about, about using people. Have you ever felt used? Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I think humans tend to do that, but I don't. Use me. Go ahead. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't want to get sidetracked, but. I can't let the opportunity pass to hear about the famous and now infamous phrase you coined to describe the transactional agreement to gain entrance to Alice Cooper's after parties. <laughs> Do you want to tell me what it is? Yeah, I don't really, you know, it's so funny how times, I, I just read this book, Homo Sapiens, mm-hmm. and um, it's so interesting how um, times change what reality is and what opinions are and what things are. So at, when I was um, on the road with Alice, it was a it was a crazy time. We did you know we were on the road. All we didn't even have houses. We were on the road, and um, in the first year or two of being on the road, um, I, I never was very aggressive with women. Whenever was my thing, um, and I would constantly be we have a party every night and I constantly hear the roadies or the band or the guests or the opening act talking to these women that they knew they would never see again probably in their lives how much they love them oh I love you I love you I love you I love you only trying to get them in bed and we're leaving town the next morning that that was the rhythm of the road and it's, I, there was something about it I found so offensive not the fact that you were having a one-night affair, because I love that. I'd love to have a, any affair. Yeah. But to lie about it, both parties knowing that this has nothing to do with the truth. You know, I love you. I love you. You're the only one for me, blah, blah, blah. What's your name again? And I said, I don't really want to do this, but I do want to have sex. I was horny. Um, so I said, what would be an honest approach? Hmm. Transactional. They want to come backstage. I want to get off. So I made up T-shirts that said, no head, no backstage pass. <laughs> now, up until the Me Too movement, I had a documentary come out. And um, whenever I would show the movie, it would, it would be a little moment of that. At the end of the movie, I'd talk about wanting to have a child. And there would always be women in the lobby when I'd come out of the movie going, uh want to have your child or can I get a t-shirt or, you know, making fun of it until the Me Too movement. And uh, two years in a row, I did the same event, Summit at Sea. In the first year, I had 20 happy women outside. And the second year, people were just, it was the night of the election. 
and women were like, you chauvinist pig, you animal, you... So I don't refer to the shirt anymore, and I apologize to anybody who no, was listen, offended. You, you know, no, I, in, in completely, times <laughs> have definitely changed. I, would, I wouldn't uh, wear that T-shirt. I don't, say, well, I don't wear the T-shirt. Can I have one, though, yeah, so no, I can... It doesn't it burn. Just in case if it comes back, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to see Smash Mouth in a week, and I want to show him that I'm down to meet him. Um, all right, that goes into Hollowed Be My Name. Now, uh, here's some more Doors or Deep Purple-style prog rock organs starting this one. I also think there's some uh, Frank Zappa's Mother's Influence as well, uh, but most prob- people probably won't get that. Uh, Peter, play uh, a little bit of Hollow Be Thy Name. I like this song because I like I like the cadence of it. The ski ba do be do ski ba do Like I just, I started singing this as I was going through the supermarket the other day, and I was like, I need to get eggs and I need oatmeal. Oh, yeah. There it is, a oatmeal. It's overpriced. It's just it's fun. <laughs> the theme sort of reminds me of John Lennon's infamous quote about the Beatles being bigger than God, but weaponized even more extremely to freak out square religious parents. What do you think? Well, I think, you know, there's an underpinning to all of the Alice Cooper stuff, which is um, his um, steeped in religion. His father, a minister. His grandfather was the head of the Church of Jesus Christ. He married the daughter of a minister. Um Religion has always been a, uh, a overpowering influence on his life. So you hear in these lyrics him questioning, you know, the Bible's always written in. He's always playing around. It, it, it's part of, of his foundation. And I think in these early albums, confused about where he fits in with it. Well, I also feel like it adds a little bit of, you know, because with, with religion, there's light. And then you when you venture away from that, there's darkness. And, there, and that, that adds to the theatrical show. I just went to go see Iron Maiden oh. uh, like two days ago. I mean, there's a whole section that Bruce Dixonson's running around with this like glowing uh-huh. cross. And he's like waving it around. And, you know, in the next song, he's playing with swords. And it all has this very religious uh-huh experience to it especially when you're watching the you're in the audience watching this star Uh that you worship because you love their music i mean it's a very religious experience so to put that kind of you know vibe into his music i mean it makes perfect sense Uh yeah Yeah, it's great they do great shows what was it oh it was at one point bruce dickinson had flamethrower arms (laughs) i was like what the fuck is this shit It was great. It was great. It was the most unattractive audience I've ever seen in my life at a concert. Fucking Dave Murray lives across the street from me. Oh, they're the ugliest band I've ever seen in my life. I said to him, I was at the last show I was at of yours. There were six teeth in the audience. Oh yeah, collectively, (laughs) collectively (laughs) six teeth. Oh my god! It was yeah. It was definitely experience. All right, let's go into my my favorite song on the record. This is the one that I'm going to take away from this album. I shared it to. All of my friends, uh, like my friend Bill Burr, uh, I tried to uh, get him onto this record, and we were driving home from smoking a cigar last night, and I put on Second Coming, and it just blew him away. Play a little bit of that for me, Peter. Just come back to show you
I fucking love this song. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I fu- there's that there's that during that little part we just played, there's this little off beat uh-huh. that just it it's almost like it it's it's not on the it's not on the four, but it's probably on the three. I don't know music well enough to discuss this. Uh, but God, it's just the second I heard this song, I was like, this is why this album is on this list. It's a really good combination of Ezrin's influence and the band's influence. Oh, it's incredible. Together. It is incredible. Uh, when I was talking to Morty about it, he says it sounds a little bit like a 60s British beat group exploring psychedelica and clearly seems to be about Jesus coming back. But... Apparently, this is also about how the Beatles had released the Phil Spector-produced single, The Long and Winding Road, and everybody praised its heavy orchestrations as if it were the second coming of a composer like Beethoven. Now, that song also kind of follows suit. It's like it's part of a longer flow in the album, uh, which brings us to the ballad of Dwight Fry. One of my favorites. One of your favorites? Why is it one of your favorites? Because uh, it's, so the- it's so Alice. I don't think there's anyone else who could... Do this song the justice that Alice does? Yeah, it's it's it was it could, like once again it was kind of like that black juju thing that caught me off guard because it starts off uh, with that childlike voice asking like, "Mommy, where's Daddy?" Monica Which Lauer, is- who we see all the time, is a girl who lives in Santa Monica. She would give us food. She was a friend of the band's, and she'd feed us once in a while. <laughs> and we see her at every show. Yeah. So, hey, how old was she? She was our age. So. Oh, okay. God, I was like, Jesus Christ. I was like, like Mommy, an eight. I thought it was Daddy? like an eight-year-old girl. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. she fed us. We were homeless musicians. <laughs> she came outside. She couldn't tell her parents because we would have creeped them the fuck out with all of our boas. Um, so it's the first Alice Cooper song that really addresses mania, insanity, and being committed. Themes that would be revisited many times late on his later records. Uh, play a little bit of Ballad of Dwight Fry, Peter. I didn't wanna be, I didn't wanna be, I didn't wanna be. Seen my lonely, not one more. I didn't wanna be, don't touch me. So this does actually sound like he's having a mental breakdown. And, and well, Bob sort of did that in the studio. He, he made him almost have a mental breakdown. How so? I don't remember if he put him in a straight jacket. Yeah, well, that's what I have right here. It says when the song was performed live. Well, I know when it was performed live. We do it live, live in a straight jacket. Live, he put it in the straight jacket, But he did yeah. something in the studio. He had him down on all fours. I wasn't there that day, but I remember hearing about it. I think he encased him in a cage. Maybe he built, like, a cage around them. Um, <laughs> and, but for us, it was really significant because it, it, it showed us the power of one on the stage. And it showed us how powerful Alice could be. When, when, when you're designing a show, normally it's you know, especially rock and roll. It, the picture frame is big, and there's action in every corner of the picture frame. Lights are going, people are moving, things are doing. And when we staged Dwight Fry, we did it in one, one spotlight. Alice in a straitjacket, and we saw for the first time the power that that had. And that's become an important part of all the shows. There's always those moments where we the have stillness, it. just yeah. like oh, it's it it translates to stand up as well because <clears throat> when I if I move on a punchline, I lose the 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 gravity of the punchline, and I've learned to stand still. And I mean, like you said, it's like listen, I've seen some bands. I went to go see Massive Attack. I don't know if you're familiar with their music, British band, British trip hop, and I love their music so much. Uh, the show was good in the sense that I got to see the band, but also they just stood there. 
the whole show. And it was powerful to an extent at certain parts, but then... You see Bruce Dickinson. You see Bruce Dickinson fucking, you know, coming out wearing an eyes wide shut sex mask with flamethrower arms and a fucking (laughs) full-size airplane above us. And like, I mean, and fucking Steve Harris like shooting the bass. And I'm like, that's fucking rock and roll. And then you go back to these British motherfuckers and they're like, he's the man who lived next door. And I'm like, all right, dude. Now, Alice was a huge fan of the classic horror movies, so Dwight Fry was an intense actor in the 30s who specialized in deranged and unbalanced characters. Uh-huh. He was nicknamed the Man of a Thousand Watt Stare. Uh, that's my ex-girlfriend's name, too. <laughs> uh, and one of his signature roles was the 1931 Bela Lugosi version of Dracula as his lunatic henchman, Renfield, who gets committed. <laughs> yeah. Were there any famous managers that inspired you, or or do you make your own inspiration? Um, I, you know, I was inspired by him not from um, from legend, not necessarily. I never, I never really interacted, but um, Brian Epstein, of course. Of course. Um, Colonel Parker with Elvis. I I was always mystified by him. Um, I thought that um, I would say the guiding, my guiding thought whenever I was trying to think of what to do for Alice was Colonel Parker not letting Ed Sullivan show Elvis's hips on the TV show. You know, he, he accepted putting Elvis on Ed Sullivan as long as they agreed not to show his hips. But Elvis had such good hips. And that's what he used. That's what broke Elvis. The hips. Was the families around the, the TV and the parents saying, he's so disgusting they won't even show his hips. And the kids are like, fuck God, I just want to see his hips. Yeah, so for me that was... How are Alice's hips? <laughs> Did Alice have... Look kind of bony, I'm not going to lie. Bony. A little bony. A little, little, little um, bony baloney. And then um, just a lot of guys. Uh, Andrew Oldham from the Stones always loved what he did. Freddie DeMann, as a contemporary, was an amazing manager. Um, and now I see a, a whole group of the young guys, Scooter Braun. Um, so a, a lot of them. So, so I know you mentioned it earlier about being uh, controlling these people's, not controlling, but you have these people's careers, not just careers, but lives uh, in your hands. Um, so where did you get the strength to be able to handle that? To, to then do this job. Yeah, no idea. Um, the psychedelics? You had a good trip yeah, one maybe. day. I mean, like, I think when I, when I, when I, my process, I mean, what, when I think about what my value is for these artists, um, I always felt my value was um, sort of trying to define what their appeal is in a few words and then creating not waiting for news to happen, but creating news that reinforces that image. Um, that would manifest itself in, um, you know, Alice throwing the chicken or Teddy Pendergrass doing for women-only concerts or Luther Vandross doing weddings live on the air. All, you know, with Luther it was romance, Teddy it was sex. So... That was always where I saw my value, and the way that I would get to that is really through uh, cannabis. I would I would get into a quiet space, smoke cannabis, and I could sort of time travel in my mind to ahead of the career and think about, wow, I'd love to pick up a newspaper that shows 10,000 screaming women throwing panties at Teddy on the front page of the LA Times to get white women to want to look in. So instead of waiting for that to happen, 
you manifested it. You you manufacture it. Yeah. Um, and so, um, I I think for me that, and that's the process I still use. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz, and I'm Flynn McClain. Together, we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! It's a very spiritual way to do it. I mean, to to be able, like I said, to manufacture, manifest, whichever way you want to call it. Um, has that so spirituality all, all always played a big part in your, not just choosing of artists, but the yeah. direction? or Not, no. Um, later on in my life, I started to feel a, a spiritual connection to the planet, but not. Was there an incident? Um, I, I, th- my first defining moment was um, I did my first movie. Um, what called, was it? Called The Duelist. It was uh, Ridley Scott's first movie. Fuck yeah, dude! And um, we won the Cannes Film Festival. Nice. Nineteen seventy-seven, and. Um, I got taken by Paramount Pictures to a restaurant in the south of France called the Moulin des Moujans. In the room was all my heroes, you know, um, Clint Eastwood, Kirk Douglas, um, Anthony Quinn, um, James Coburn, like all these, you know, I was yeah. 20, 30 years old. And um, I was a, an abuser of everything, drinking too much, snorting too much. Um, way too much jewelry, the white Rolls Royce, married to the playmate. I was headed for a disaster. And sure. I sort of knew I was enjoying every minute of my life, but I knew I was headed towards a train wreck. Even though I was enjoying the minutes, I knew that the years were not going to be kind. And I could see in front of me all these people who had taken the same path. And their knees are jumping, and they're looking around the room, and they're smoking cigarettes. And, and I say to myself, I don't want to become one of them. That's not. I just wanted to buy dinner. That's what I got into this for, so I could eat. And into the room walked this beautiful man, all dressed in white, white hair, very calm. Like whew. I said, that's who I want to be. And it was a chef who I went and introduced myself to, and ended up. Uh, um, he became my. I, there was a show called Kung Fu. Oh, yeah, I remember. And um, I said to him, I, w- I would like to be your grasshopper. He's like, first thing you got to do, take off all those bracelets. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. got way too many bracelets on, dude. Yeah. So he, he let me uh, follow his life for the next 25, 30 years. Wow. And um, really changed my life. Um, he gave me a way to do what I do and be happy and be content. And for him, it was really through service, which came into what I was doing for my job um, with service. So it all started to come together for me. And that's when um, I started to think about higher purposes and just eating. (laughs) I think that's a perfect segue into the final song on the record, which is Sun Arise. Uh, 
which is such a such a uh, I don't want to call it inspirational, but just from everything else we've been listening to on this record to end with this song. I mean, it just it really puts you in and a I good mood. I think this is the only thing they didn't write. I think this was Rolf Kemp. Is that right? Yes, Rolf Harris. Rolf Harris. So this is a cover of a 1960s song by Australian pop artist Rolf Harris and produced by, or the song was produced by a pre-Beatles era George Martin. Uh, it starts off like a Pink Floyd song, uh, and then it becomes something of a spiritual salutation to the sun. Peter, play a little bit of it for me. just such a dark i mean black juju <laughs> is on this record which sounds like people have been you know cannibalized to it and then you fucking have a lot to do when the sun shines a blow in la 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 it's fucking it's just it's, it really threw me for a loop i was like is this the same record or is spotify on shuffle right now because it didn't make sense um how do you feel what do you what do you what what, what do you feel when you hear this song um, for me, it, it brings a great smile to my face because it, it was the opening of our show for so long. You we play would, this. We would start the show with Alice under a cloth, and he'd have a hammer. And the show would start without lights, and slowly the lights would pulse on, sun to rise, and then he'd come up from out of the cloth. And, but we did that for years. That was the opening of the show. So that's how I really relate to it. Just uh, how many memories you yeah, have of just yeah. watching them start it and know that the crowd is in for a yeah, real treat. Real treat. That's great. All right, let's. Uh, do you want to do some facts? Sure. Let's do some facts. Here's the facts. So da the fact facts. All right. The cover of the album was censored after it was released. When you first look, you see a black and white photo of the band in a spotlight, all made up and grouped together in their stage clothes. But if you look at Alice's well-positioned cape at about crotch level, he had his thumb sticking out, which is something I would have done. <laughs> the record was re-released with his entire arm, including his offending thumb airbrushed out. How did you deal with this and all other uh Truthfully, I don't remember it at all. Really? Yeah. We had a lot of stuff that we had to deal with, but I don't remember this. I've read this many times. Thumb dick. Yeah. It's, that's what college no, it's students do. It's something we would have done. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. I really don't remember it, which is wild. But I, I have read it so many times that it must be true. Well, is there anything that you wouldn't do or didn't do to achieve career success? Um... And not just with Alice. I mean, just yeah, a blanket I mean, I, statement. I, I mean, we don't leave. We never leave blood. We try never to hurt anybody, you know, or do. Uh, my philosophy always was winners and winners. So I never tried to do winners and losers. A lot yeah. of a lot of managers, a lot of acts, believe in winners and losers. And we just so my theory always was winners and winners. And if I had acts that didn't like that, then we didn't work together. But I was always very vocal about that up front. The things I would tell acts is I probably won't make you the most amount of money. Um, and I'm not going to fuck anybody over for you. Um, but chances are no one will need to know your last name. You're going to get that old one-name artist. So if that's what's important to you, you know, um, if making the most amount of money is important, find someone else. Because um, that's not what I do. I you wanted to make icons. Yeah, that was my. That's what gets me off. That's my joy, and and that's what I did well. And I wasn't, you know, you have to be a certain type of person to uh, want to get all the marbles. I was always happy to share them. 
Sure. There's enough for everybody. Yeah. All right. In the summer of 1970, the band appeared at the Strawberry Fields Festival, a Woodstock-like event near Toronto, Ontario. They stood out amongst the other hippie bands and freaked out the audience. As Alice Cooper said, we were into fun, sex, death, and money when everybody was into peace and love, and we drove a stake through the heart of the love generation. It's close. It was a Toronto pop festival. Okay. Um, First time John Lennon played without the Beatles. I produced the show. Okay. It was Plastic Ono Van, Jim Morrison, Alice, The Doors. And that was the time of the uh, chicken incident. That was the night of Oh, the- we're going to get to that. Don't worry. But besides that, what what was the weirdest gig you've ever played? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> um, oh, Fort Huachuca. Tell me about it. That was my first gig with Alice. Um. First of all, the place called Fort Huachuca, which just means it's going to be fucking interesting. They, they came from Arizona to L.A. So I got a call from like a Sergeant Bilko. His name was, I don't want to say his name actually. Um, but he was the, um, he he ran the family activity center at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. He was the sergeant in charge of it, like a Sergeant Bilko. And... Um, he called up and wanted Alice to come play at Fort Huachuca. And I didn't even know what to do. Um, you know, I had never booked a gig or done anything, but they wanted to pay $500. It seemed great, so we took the date. And I went with them. It was my first show, and we show up, and they had advertised them as a stripper with a band, Alice Cooper, and had sold the tickets on the pay line at the Army base. So when we showed up and Alice got up on stage, these five guys, they started throwing stuff at they started throwing stuff at us and uh it was wild. We had to run out of the place. Oh yeah, I can imagine. A bunch of horny soldiers. So now it's it's um maybe two years later and I get a a uh, phone call from Joel Siegel. I don't know if you remember Joel Siegel, ABC TV. Yeah, it was he did the movie reviews on ABC TV. He was the press person at Fort Huachuca when Alice played that day, so he had my number. He just moved to LA, so (laughs) and we became friends for life. But that was the weirdest. Oh, that's great! All right, now for the most important question, and it's what we've all been waiting for. I think it's why people tuned in: Uh, chicken, fried or balsamic. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so easily the most famous story, of course, about Alice Cooper happened in 1969 at the Toronto Rock and Roll Revival Festival. Uh, would you care to elaborate? Uh, yeah, Alice was on, I think I had mentioned, with John Lennon. He played between John Lennon and The Doors. And um, in those days, we ended the show with a feather pillow. Alice would break open a feather pillow and shoot CO2, and it would cover the stage with feathers and look beautiful in the lights and get people standing up because they get hit with the grill and grab the feathers. And as we drove in, there were feral chickens. It was outdoors at, at Varsity Stadium. And there were some feral chickens. And when I saw the feral chicken, I said, oh man, this could people would really get pissed off if Alice threw the chicken. Um, so I didn't say anything to him, but when they when it came time to the chicken thing, I took the chicken and threw it up on stage, and I had no idea what he would do with it, but I knew 
people would get pissed off that there was a live chicken on. Eventually, I could get a journalist to write about it sure. and get really pissed. Well, he, he thinking chickens could fly, because neither one of us ever were on a farm, picked it up and threw it in the audience. But chickens don't fly. They drop. <laughs> and it dropped, and the audience just ripped it apart. They oh. were so frantic. And that became... The next day, the headline was, Alice bites the head off of a chicken and drinks its blood. And we said, don't ever say it's not true, because this is the greatest story sure. <laughs> ever for what we were trying to do. And that started, that really was the breaking point. Um, all right, well, final thoughts on the record. Um, I loved Love It to Death. I mean, for me, that's still, you know, um, Billion Dollar Babies, Love It to Death are probably two of my favorite Alice Cooper records. It was incredible. Yeah. It really, really was for for someone like me. Like I said at the beginning, uh, that was a very passive fan of the hits of Alice to really hear his full record, especially one early on. Um, you could see how he would suddenly grow into the artist that yeah. he became, yeah. and and it was great. It was also great being able to sit down and talk with you today. Well, thank you. Uh, Good to thank be you here. so much. It was my pleasure. A so pleasure. thank you, brother. Thank you. A legend. A legend. For all things Shep Gordon, guys, go to ShepGordon.com. And if you want to find him on social media, it's at Shep Gordon. I'm going to be posting his Spotify mixtape on the website. You can find all things 500 at the500podcast.com. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. And follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Like I said at the beginning, live taping of the 500 at JFL 42 in Toronto. Come see me and Dan Soder break down police's synchronicity on September 27th at 3.30 p.m. If you're in the Toronto area, make it out. Don't forget, guys, subscribe to the 500 on Spotify, your favorite platform, my favorite platform. And if you guys are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. Do it. Follow the staff of the 500 at DJ Morty Coil, at Avery Funny, at JT Podcast Exec, at Badass Wizard, and at Real Matt Pinfield. Now, we just listened to Alice Cooper from 1971. For new music this week, our music director, Matt Pinfield, selected White Reaper. White Reaper are a young rock band from Louisville, Kentucky. Their influences range from Alice Coop to all the way to Thin Lizzy and then throwing some cheap trick and some cars. The reputation for incredible live shows has them constantly out on the road. Listen to their new single, Might Be Right, on Spotify. And you can find all of that on our website at the500podcast.com. And if you guys were in a band and were directly influenced by one of these albums or artists and you want your music featured on the 500 website, send your song to 500podcast at gmail.com. Make sure you put the album and the artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week is EPMD week with their 1987 album, Strictly Business. You got some homework to do. Listen to it on Spotify. And what do we say every day? Stay fleecy. The number you have reached is 100.7 WMMS. It wasn't just a radio station, it was a lifestyle. It is a rock and roll city for sure. Get down! The Wrath of the Buzzard. WMMS. 
The rise and fall of one of the most iconic radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, PROH Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind. Uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little, a little taste of it right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick. And usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work. But we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh, revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love want to love or hate yeah imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that that uh has impacted your life uh and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week so triangulate your speakers think about jumping off the bed singing along dancing like an idiot and listen to axe grind podcast next chapter podcasts